I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topic ranging from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice and beyond. In order to provide a nuanced, educational, and honest examination of systemic racism and dominant culture. I am so excited to have Dr. Kimia Saraf here with me. Dr. Kimia Saraf completed her medical degree and master's of public health at the University of Utah School of Medicine and her residency in internal medicine at Barnes Jewish Hospital, Washington University School of Medicine. The arc of her two plus decade career has included medical practice, public health programming and development, nonprofit leadership, multiple board positions in the public and private sector, DEI and trauma mitigation work in medical education, private business ownership and farming. Dr. K, as she is called, founded Lodestar in 2016, responding to a need for trauma responsive subspecialty coaching methods for physician colleagues who are reporting high levels of severe burnout, vicarious trauma and moral injury. Her work has since expanded to include consulting work across multiple industries, leadership training, and the creation of trauma-responsive cultures. She serves as adjunct faculty at Southern Illinois University School of Medicine in the Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. Her work includes bringing a trauma-informed lens and trauma mitigation approach to justice, equity, and anti-racism work. She co-leads several national initiatives, bringing her unique paradigm and focus on leadership development onto the creation of trauma-responsive systems and cultures, the better support learners at every stage of their medical training and throughout their careers. I'm going to stop now with the bio. I don't want to, but there's so many awesome things, um, including it looks like your son had leukemia and there was like a whole thing there. So I, I want to like honor and acknowledge that. Um, uh, and that sounds like that was a massive thing that, that happened in your life. Um, and I just want to say, I'm so grateful to have Kimia here. She, um, did a, uh, we're facilitators together in a medical education equity program. She led a um, trauma-informed training, which is something I've been very interested in and uh, had some training in, but not in this context. And it was uh, amazing. And I'm taking her course in May. Uh, so I'm so excited, um, Kimia, to have you here. Thanks for joining. I am so happy to be here with you. And I just want to open um, with this to let your listeners know that my son who had leukemia is absolutely fine. Um, so it, it always feels important to me to give the punchline to that story um, up front so that uh, people aren't left wondering, you know, if that is, if that had a happy ending or not. He is, uh, he's off at college living his best life now. College. Oh my God. That's like, that's, that's not like three years ago. Like it's like, yeah, yeah. He was, um, it, it was many years ago. We'll get you that part of the story later on, but everybody knows the punchline when we get there so that I don't end up uh, making anybody Yay. worry about him. Yay. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so I, I, there's, there's a lot for us to get into, but I'd love to maybe just start with like who you are, your background, like how, you know, we've read, you know, we've already talked about a little bit of your like medical training and stuff, but like what brought you into, equity work and, and, and how, why specifically trauma work? And, and then I want to get into later, like, or now how trauma, because a lot of people may not see once you see it, it's like, oh my God, of course. But a lot of people may not see immediately the, the connection between trauma and, and equity work. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. And, and thanks for the nice intro too. I appreciate it. I'm very glad to be here with you today. So I'm going to back up a little bit because you asked about how I ended up here. And it's, it's such an interesting question um, because, you know, in the, in the late early eight, late eighties, early nineties, we didn't call this anti-racism work and yet it existed. I mean, this kind of work that you and I engage in actively today has, has, has been the work of many, many decades. And it's, it's come in a lot of different forms. And so we're just going to sort of put that on the table that, that, you know, sort of where we are now, there's been an arc to the learning and there's been an arc to the, how we language it even, which is really important to notice because I think what noticing that does is sort of open us up to the understanding that um, for those who are coming in now or recently engaging in this work, maybe for the first time or maybe differently, um, that, that where I am in this work today is not where I was 30 years ago. And we didn't even have the language that we have today 30 years ago. And in fact, um, one of my friends who does a lot of this work at the, at the national level, she's been doing very, very um, deep, leading edge anti-racism work for, for a decade um, exclusively, was telling me the other day, she said, you know, I look back on some of the things that I would have said in the, in the 80s or 90s around this, and I think, oh my gosh, that was such a racist way of phrasing it. And yet that was the way that we, that we languaged things. So, you know, it, this is a living, breathing, moving, expanding area, and it's very exciting time to be engaging in it. And I love it very, very much. And the intersection um, is a, a really, really important one. The intersection between trauma and racism is state and Maine. It's just, that is absolutely state in Maine. And so it's really important to, to notice that. So with that sort of opening, I'm gonna step back and say that um, the, the field of trauma as we are coming to understand it is pretty young. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty new, rapidly expanding um, field, not only of study, but also just of, of understanding in the ways that it impacts us, the ways that it can show up. And so if we, if I, without going into too much history about it, it's actually younger than I am, sort of the mo our modern understanding of it. And so on some level or another, this has this, this trauma informed trauma responsive trauma mitigation work has been woven into a lot of the programs that I've built and developed in public health for a long time. So <clears throat> I did my public health degree before I went to medical school and informed a lot of the way that I moved as a physician, as a clinician. And I spent um, over a decade in the place that I live now in central Illinois, um, building and applying a lot of public health programming to some, some initiatives that we started in this area. And central to that was that those programs always be steeped in this understanding that um, we might be encountering trauma in an individual or in a group that we needed to um, recognize and be sensitive to. 
So in 2015, 2016, when I formally went and got uh, trained and certified as a coach, one of the things I really wanted to do was work with physicians who were experiencing a lot of burnout. I was seeing a lot of that show up in colleagues. And as I began working uh, sort of one-on-one, what I started to notice that what was showing up really wasn't burnout. It really wasn't burnout. It was the manifestation of trauma, secondary trauma, vicarious trauma, a lot of primary trauma as well that maybe had or hadn't been acknowledged. And those principles and practices, those trauma-informed principles and practices were a really good, uh, was a really good toolkit to bring to individual coaching because it's not therapy. You know, a therapeutic relationship is one in which you come to me for a diagnosis, I make a diagnosis, I come up with a treatment plan, we execute on that treatment plan, and I'm, resp- I'm the one responsible for the outcome, right? In coaching is very different. The client comes with their set of goals. The client is considered to be, you know, uh, creative, competent, and whole. They are coming with someone to expand their, their worldview, to help them distill their thinking, but they ultimately are responsible for their outcomes. Well, there's always been some overlap in the Venn diagram between the two. People always bring in their, the entirety of their lived experience. So history comes into it and emotion comes into it. And so taking these trauma-informed, trauma-responsive principles, which include things like holding space for big emotions when they show up, for strong emotions when they show up, um, recognizing the manifestations of trauma when they show up, but none of it is diagnostic. None of it digs. You know, you're not, you know, asking people to dissect their pain. You just recognize that it might be there and you hold space for it when it shows up and allow people to tell you the truth of their life as they currently understand it without judgment. And what I found was that this, this you know, many decades of sort of learning to move through the world in that way works so well with these physician coaches who needed a place to recognize, to name, to unpack, and to step into choice about what to do with the places of harm they were carrying. And as they did that, what started showing up was that the harm comes in a lot of different ways. It's institutional harm. It's individual harm first, right? So they might be carrying, you know, primary traumas with them. It's also institutional and educational harm. It's cultural and community harm. It's secondary, you know, trauma showing up from walking alongside people who are being traumatized. It's vicarious trauma, listening to those stories and bearing witness to those stories of harm done to others. Uh, It's intergenerational trauma and it's the trauma of racism. And as as the applications of these trauma-informed practices became clearer and clearer and clearer, and as the outcomes that I was getting, you know, I would have physicians come in and say, I gotta quit, I gotta quit to live. I I love what I do. I, I have given 30 years of my life. I've given 20 years of my life. I've given 15, 10 years of my life to becoming a physician because this is what I love. And not for nothing, I'm $250,000 in debt. 
and I have to quit because the job is killing me. And as they were able to unpack and feel not alone and step into choice and make decisions and, and begin creating a different way of being, um, they were able to rekindle their love, their passion, their career. This was small in the beginning because, because it's, um, it, it wasn't sort of widely recognized or understood how ubiquitous trauma is. And then we got into 2020. And one of the ways that became very evident to everyone is this idea that um, trauma is more than simply event. Trauma is also can result from chronic exposure to toxic stress, to unrelenting, inescapable uncertainty and toxic stress. And that can become embedded and begin to show up as symptoms of, um, of trauma exposure. And so with this wider paradigm and as people are looking for, how do we move through this? How do we lead through this? How do I navigate this personally and professionally? How do I recognize um, the signs and symptoms so that I can show up as my best version of myself so that I can take care of patients in the right way so I can take care of colleagues in the right way so I can lead my institution in the right way? Um, the demand started to grow. And so it was a, a very natural space to step into sort of expanding this understanding for folks. Because once, once we understand what we're seeing in ourselves, once we can notice it in ourselves, it becomes much easier to notice and understand and be in choice in how we engage with others. If we don't, failure to notice and understand and recognize that means that what often ends up happening is I get activated, which is a word, as you know, I use instead of the word triggered. I get activated and my activation can activate the person that I'm engaging with or the group that I'm engaging with. So learning to notice that, learning to notice those stages of activation, which are very normal and then be in choice about what to do with it is a really important first step. It's really, really important because the truth of the matter is we're all carrying varying degrees of exposure to an embodiment of the trauma of these times. Um, I love that. And it's, it's, it shows up everywhere trauma. And I think we don't necessarily think of that. Like I've been teaching meditation through a trauma informed lens. And some people are like, what, what, why, how, how, how is that? But like trauma is done all the time, like by dominant culture and by, you know, like there's, there's so much of it in there. And I, I love hearing you. I love hearing you talk about it in medical education. And also it like brings up stuff for me because I was interviewing someone or no, someone was interviewing me for a podcast and they started asking me questions about my residency. And I started to get like really activated. Like I started to have a stress reaction, a stress response, just from talking about stuff about my residency that I hadn't even like thought about in years. So it is, it is a, a extremely traumatizing. I'm super interested in, and maybe we can talk about this offline of like how the medical, the trauma of medical education, or maybe we talk about it now, how that 
impacts patient care, how, how traumatized doctors bringing that and, and other healthcare professionals too. I'm speaking as a doctor. So bringing that to patients who, who themselves are experiencing trauma for different or some of the same reasons, but some different reasons and how that kind of perpetuates the lived experience of everyone in that, in, in that dynamic and, and contributes to why healthcare is so toxic and in so many levels. I think it's a, actually, a, a, it's sort of a crux question. I, I, and if you don't mind, let's spend a minute with it because yeah. it, it's such an important question. Sometimes I describe medical education as amputational. And here's why it's, I think that that's an important thing to notice because part of the training by design, I don't think by deliberate design, I think by sort of accidental design, um, it separates us from noticing what's happening in our own bodies. So it is really, really designed to amputate us from noticing any of our own physiological needs. We, are, we, we train ourselves out of noticing our fatigue and our need for sleep. There's a lot of sleep deprivation. We train ourselves out of noticing our need to do things like use the bathroom or hydrate or eat. I mean, it really is about physical stamina that actually also becomes physically harmful. And, and the way that we navigate that is by learning to ignore natural physiological cues. And the impact of that is that many times um, because the, the brain and body are not separate. And I, I got to give you a little bit of my own bias here, which is that my bias is that one of the worst things Western um, medicine has ever done to the, the art of medicine is separate the terms medi- uh, mental and physical health. Mm. It is, there is no mental health versus physical health. There is only health. If you cut my head off, I will die. So, you know, in it, it has created stigma that prevents people from seeking care, from seeking health care, because it's mental health. And so therefore, we should be able to think our way out of it. Guess what? Trauma shows up in the body first. So here's a little, and I'm going to break this down into the most um, simplistic way that I can. We're hardwired for two things. We're going to talk about one of them. We're hardwired for threat detection. We're hardwired for threat detection because that is what keeps us alive. Evolutionarily, our capacity to to detect and respond instantaneously in a nanosecond to threat was necessary for keeping us alive. And so we have this exquisite threat detection system that is scanning the environment at all times, picking up signals that we notice, but mostly picking up signals that we don't consciously notice. We are unconsciously aware of them and interpreting those signals and creating what is happening to us in the moment. So this is an important piece of it. We are not living in the reality. We are living in what our brain is interpreting. Mm. And this is very, 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 very important when it comes to trauma. 
So we have these threat detection systems. I'm going I'm to actually explain what that means because it sounds really existential. And, and the first time I really came to understand this, I think I had a bit of an existential crisis. I'm like, what do you mean this isn't reality? <laughs> Our threat detection systems are gathering data and interpreting that data based on past experience because it's got to make a nanosecond decision about whether I'm safe or not safe. And the best descriptor I have of this, and I'm not a sports person, but this is such a brilliant and beautiful way to understand it. In Major League Baseball, the batter is not swinging at the fastball being pitched. They are swinging at the 10,000 fastballs that, they, that were pitched previously. And the reason we know that is we do not have the capacity to interpret a fastball coming at us at 90 miles an hour and hit it. The brain is interpreting from past experience. So you're swinging at previous fastball. That's why you practice so much. Okay, this is really applicable to what's happening with threat detection. If I am living under constant duress, if my threat detection system, if I have, have repeated or chronic exposure to trauma, that is going to prime and sensitize my threat detection system. And I am going to miscue. I am going to misread. My brain will misinterpret what is happening currently and can send me into a state of activation. So when we're, when, you noticed that you were becoming activated in talking about residency. You were very safe in the moment, and yet you're getting activated in the body because of, because of this threat detection system getting pinged in some kind of way. So it's a reliving a little bit of what has happened previously. Now that it happens in the relative safety of a podcast interview with someone who practices grounding techniques and mindfulness and meditation, you notice that come up in your body. What often happens is in medical education and, and in lots and lots and lots of different professions, because we don't notice those physical symptoms, we react rather than responding. Responses are in choice, reactions are not. So if I am in a situation where my, my threat detection system says, you're in danger, girl, you better do something now. I'm not gonna think about what I need to do. This is not, a, I'm pointing to my prefrontal cortex for those of you who can't see what's happening. I'm, I'm, I'm tapping my forehead. My brain isn't in, engaged fully, my body is engaged. And the reason for this is that our threat detection systems are saying, this is some sort of face-eating bear. That's what I like to call it, it's face-eating bear. And super, super helpful to go into fight or flight if you're encountering a face-eating bear. That's what keeps you alive. Where we get tripped up is that our threat detection system does not differentiate between physical threat and social threat. Our threat detection system does not differentiate between physical threat and social threat. And there's actually a really good reason for this. 
you remember a few minutes ago, I said, we're hardwired for two things. Both of them are designed to keep us alive. The first is we're hardwired for threat detection. The second thing is we're hardwired for connection because connection historically, evolutionarily is also what kept us alive. You get thrown at a tribe, you die. So that, that social threat was historically, evolutionarily, very, very dangerous. So we can interpret social threat in a lot of ways. My boss comes at me, my, my colleague comes at me, someone says something that my brain perceives as you are unloved, you are unsafe, you are out of tribe, it can um, activate that same sort of embodied fight, flight, freeze, cement. Those are two other major dominant um, trauma pathways. And if I've misread the situation, if, I am, if my system is misfiring because it's so primed, I can do a lot of damage because the system is not concerned with our relationship. It's not concerned with whether Dr. Werner and Dr. Saraf remain collegial. It is not concerned with preservation of my job. It is not concerned with preservation of my marriage, my social standing, my, my capacity to earn a living. It is only concerned with keeping me alive. That's it. And so in, in this very complex, very interactive, rich environment of modern society, when we are as primed and sensitized as we are, that becomes very dangerous socially and physically because my activation has a really bad habit of activating you and vice versa if we don't know what's happening. And we can learn to know what's happening by number one, understanding, by number two, accepting the penetrance of trauma in the human population right now is 100%. Just let's accept that as fact and move on. <laughs> and then let's begin to notice those early cues because my body will cue me before my brain ever recognizes that something is happening. And actually, as we become better and better at this, we can even start noticing when... Um, when our exposure to sort of this toxic environment is getting a little high. And there are things that we can do to reduce exposure. There are things we can do to mitigate exposure. There are things that we can do to offload even a, even a ongoing trauma so that it doesn't become embodied, so that that pathway doesn't get reinforced. We can't do any of these things if we don't understand sort of at a very basic, and I'm going to apologize in advance to all of our neurology and neuroscience colleagues, because they're going to listen to this and they're going to be like, okay, that is the most simplistic explanation I've ever heard. And it's accurate. And if we can break it down into a simple understanding, then we can begin to be in choice about how much exposure am I getting? How am I going to offload that exposure safely? How am I going to prevent this from becoming embodied? How am I going to learn to notice? What am I going to choose to do when I do notice? 
How do you see trauma showing up? Uh, first off, thank you for that explanation. I'm I'm fascinated with trauma and I'm I like find myself taking notes, even though like I like want to take notes for the podcast so I can like remember what we talked about and like create show notes. But then I'm like, okay, like I don't need to be like taking like, actual notes because I'm just gonna like be writing the whole time. But um and and I love you know, because I've I've done a lot of work in the trauma space. And I still love how you put it together. And I still love hearing how you talk about it. And I think people listening are going to just love it um, and learn so much. How do you see, how do you see trauma showing up in, in equity work? Um, and, and not, not just like, how do you see trauma showing up in the lived experience of systemic racism and, and people who are wanting to do equity work? Like what, what needs to be accounted for and, and understood, yeah. if that makes sense. It's a, it's a great question. And the, the pause that you're hearing and seeing is I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out where to begin with it because it is, um, it is foundational understanding that, first of all, understanding that racism is trauma. It is trauma it is the lived experience that it is chronic trauma. It's not, and racism is not, in our, in our racialized identities, honestly, is not a, um, it's not a traumatic event. It is chronic trauma exposure. It's chronic trauma exposure. It is walking through the world not just feeling unsafe, but being taught and having that teaching reinforced that you are unsafe. It's the knowing of being unsafe. And it is cumulative and compounding. So, you know, there is, we talk about um, microaggressions. And, and when we talk about it, and I'm sure that men, you and many of your listeners have heard um, the analogy of, of microaggressions being like death by paper cut. Mm -hmm. um, I would take, I would change that. And I understand that analogy. I would change that metaphor a little bit to it is, it is more like death by avalanche. It is cumulative and compounding. It isn't the first snowflake that triggers the avalanche. It's not the 10,000, it's not even the 10 million, it's the 10 billion. And suddenly, boom, this, the, it, it is crushing. It, the avalanche is triggered and it, it is crushing. And it is the reinforcement of that, again, that threat detection of that path that says you are unsafe, socially you're unsafe, physically, you're unsafe. And I, I just don't think we can overstate the fact that it is compounding. It is cumulative. It isn't the one experience. It isn't the one event. It is the, it is the accumulation of a lifetime. And we are starting to learn it is, it is also the accumulation of your mother's mm -hmm. father's mm -hmm. lifetime and and the grand it, it's the ancestral carryover of all of this 
we don't understand everything we need to understand about epigenetics yet. I mean, it's a, it's a new area. And the little that we do understand is that trauma changes our DNA. Let's not talk about racial trauma with this. Let's talk about the trauma of, of famine. Um, just as a parallel, we know that the, ans that the descendants in Eastern Europe and, and Western Europe of those who went through significant famine three and four generations ago, we are still seeing changes in their DNA multiple generations later in, in, by those who have never experienced famine. The trauma of that famine carries forward. And so this is an area for both um, understanding, I mean, the, the, the field is growing, but also I think some hope that as we learn more, we can disrupt this, we can repair this, we can make choices that um, are restorative and reparative and healing, but only again, if we know, and we become very deliberative about disrupting. I'm, I'm really keen on this idea that we can step in and disrupt trauma as it's happening before it becomes embodied, before it harms, does telomeric damage. Now, do we know that for a fact? No. And what I do know for a fact is that when something occurs, whether we want to call it a micro, and I, I really dislike because it feels very diminishing. When, we, when something happens, when you have a, an encounter that is harmful and you choose to um, try to unpack that encounter in a safe space with somebody who knows how to knows how to be in that with you, is willing to step into that space with you and disrupt it with you, it doesn't become embodied. It becomes actually a source of wisdom rather than a wound. And I think that's, that's where the hope in this work really exists. And it, again, it, it requires that as clinicians, as physicians, we begin getting back in touch with our bodies. We begin recognizing um, where this shows up in our bodies, honoring where it shows up in our bodies, naming it, um, and being in choice about that. That also allows us to be more present with and for not, each, not only each other and our students and our residents, but also with and for our patients. We get to show up differently. How, thank you for that explanation. Um, and I, 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 th I think trauma is so fascinating and like ways to heal it that it like, it's really all in the body with tapping. When I do that, like it's all Absolutely. about like, that's, that's how it came about is like to treat trauma. Um, it does so much, so many other things. And there's so many other ways to, 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 if it's not prevented to still go back and, and work to heal it. Um, and it's like, I feel like endlessly fascinating. Um, so I've, I've, I've started to get an understanding of how trauma shows up for white people 
in racial spaces. Um, Resma Menachem's book, he talks about the, the trauma of, um, of multiple generations ago, you know, hundreds or longer years ago of the, the violence of the, I don't know, the middle ages or whatever time it was, where like white people in Europe were before they were white, they were just European endured trauma from wars and being brutalized and tortured. And then they came over and then they kind of played that out. They relived that as the oppressors. Um, how do you see trauma showing up? And it's, it's like a, it's a tough thing to talk about without an understanding of trauma because then it's like, shut up. White people aren't traumatized by race. Like they don't, they're not the ones who, who are getting oppressed, but it does show up in, in spaces just in a different, maybe in a different way. Would you like to comment on that? Well, I would say racism kills all of us. It's just killing some people faster right now. It is, it is poisonous to mind, body, and soul of every single person. Uh, and it is far, far more dangerous uh, to black and brown people in the immediate. And, and so how do we begin to unwind that oh, that's that's above my pay grade i mean now we're talking about you know undoing or or really we really we're talking very aspirationally i think that we are in a space right now i think this is important I think this is important because what came up for me um, as you were talking about this is this idea that hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And when we don't know, when we don't recognize, when we don't understand where certain behaviors are coming from, we just simply perpetuate them. It is important to recognize that, that each of us have different capacity uh, for that recognition and that understanding and um, all of us have some greater capacity to do, uh, to, to, to move in this space than we are at this moment in time. Um, and so it is, it is, and that capacity issue comes into play, I think in particular, as we think about how are we going to lead in equity? How are we going to lead this equity work? And how are we going to do it in a way that is, is uh, that holds the space coming from full circle in our conversation, that holds the space for those who are new to it? I think you probably hear this as often as I do. I want to be in this work and I'm terrified I'm going to get it wrong. That's a very vulnerable thing for someone to say, because remember, social threat pings the same piece of our brain as physical threat. I want to be in this work and I'm terrified I'm going to get it wrong. Cannot be dismissed as we all get it wrong, just come along, it'll be okay, because that is not anyone's lived experience. Our lived experiences, when I get it wrong, I get blamed, I get shamed, I get belittled, I get thrown out of tribe. And I want to be in this with you. Are you going to make it safe for me to get it wrong? Is it gonna be okay? 
Well, to make it safe for other people to get it wrong, guess what I have to do? I have to get it wrong publicly, not deliberately, but if I, you know, um, it, it, my my colleague um, uh, Kelly Herstoffen says if I'm if I'm going to teach in public, I have to consent to, to um, learn in public as well. And so, as we make mistakes, recognize, name, and and be okay with being either called out or invited in. Leadership has to be okay with that. That that has to be a part of the capacity of a good leader in order to make it safe for others to do the same. And I think this also has to be a place, a, a deliberate decision for those who have the power because this cannot bubble up. This cannot be a grassroots movement. This cannot be, I mean, it, it can also, but it, we have to create systems that are responsive to, that understand and are responsive to the trauma that exists. And I also think that if we are unwilling to be responsive to the trauma that exists to everyone in the room, whether they are racialized as white or black or brown, if we are not willing to be responsive to, and it doesn't have to you know, be done in the same way in every situation, to the trauma that exists in all of us, then we really are doing a disservice both to the work that needs to be done and also <clears throat> to the needs of the individual. And what that means is this is really slower, closer work. This is not transactional. And we want to make things transactional because reducing it to that makes it appear that it can go faster. This is not transactional work. It's deeply relational. I can't unwind this with a, with a, um, you know, a webinar that someone comes and watches and figures out on their own. We have to feel psychologically safe to unpack some of this to ask questions, to, to make mistakes and to correct those mistakes and repair those mistakes. Not simply just apologize and move on. We do that when we break a dish, but to actually repair and restore relationship and to know that relationships can be restored. And it's actually why I have such a, um, I, I really dislike cancel culture. I dislike what I see happening with cancel culture because I think it is teaching people that if you make a mistake, you're out. There's no restoration. There's no opportunity for restoration. If you make a mistake, come closer. Let's talk about it. These things can be repaired. We want to repair them. We want to restore them. That's what's good for everyone. That's what makes all of us safer. And that's how we move forward together. Uh, and so how we language this is really, really important also. Uh, and, and sometimes we don't do such a good job, but I, I hear a lot of people just saying, I wanna do this and I'm afraid of getting it wrong. And I think a part of that fear is born of watching and absorbing this message that if you get it wrong, you're done, you're out. Yeah. 
So I have a question and we're like at time. So I don't know if we can get into this right now because it's like, I hear everything you're saying, but that I'm sort of like white people have been coddled race wise their entire lives and have not built any resilience. Generally, I speak as a white woman, like how can we recognize like, yes, it's scary to talk about it, but like other, you know, minoritized people have been dealing with this discomfort their whole lives, get over it kind of like, like mm. I've had to tell myself that and, and, and work through that and be like, like, like holding space for that process, but like who's holding space for black folks who are uncomfortable every day and having to just deal with that in their lived experience. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's such a, like, that's the tension, yeah. right? And, and how do we hold that tension? And, and you and I are in absolute agreement about this. This is the work to be done in certain spaces. And it, it, if, if uh, <laughs> members of the global majority, I mean, let's name it for what it is. You know, we, we, we talk about it being minority or minoritized, but actually we're talking about members of the global majority. Um, there are... Um, black and brown men and women willing to step in and do that work with and do that work for. And I have very, very strong opinions about um, we always pay for that work. Unpaid labor is a big issue in the, in DEI, in the DEI world. That can be choice. And this work can be the work of, of those who's, for whom that is not their lived experience. Yeah. I am in no way suggesting that it is the job of our black and brown colleagues to step in and do that work for or with um, white people who are newer to this work or who um, are brand new to this work. It is our work to do together and it is our work um, to to engage in from a trauma responsive place. I am willing to hold the space for that, for that unpacking, for that recognition. I, you know, and coming back around to this idea of tribe also, mm -hmm. um, there are places where, where certainly multi-generationally, you're growing up with a sense of safety because of perhaps um, a religious upbringing or a community upbringing that says, you know, these are absolute truths. And many of those absolute quote, air quote here, many of those absolute mm -hmm. truths are now being disrupted. And that disruption can, can activate the threat detection system because it's like, well, does that throw me out of tribe then? And where do I go? Right. You know, the, the fear underneath all of this is deserving of acknowledgement. It is deserving of space to, to work through because if we don't, then it, I think it, it actually pushes, polarizes and becomes more dangerous, not less so. Yeah. And very, very rarely does shaming, blaming, or even explaining bring anyone, invite anyone to come closer. What invites people to come closer and allows their nervous system to settle is, I'm here with you. Let's have this conversation. 
I've been afraid of these conversations too. I'm learning too. What I understand now is not what I understood 30 years ago. I've been called racist too. We'll go through this together. And one of the places that I, I see this sometimes come up too is when we start talking just even about simple things like, like unconscious bias. And why do people become so afraid of that? Because we haven't taken the next step and said, guess what? Everybody carries bias. I have bias. I, Dr. K, have biases. They're unconscious. Where do they become dangerous? When I leave them in the dark. When I choose to remain unconscious of them, that's when they get dangerous. If I choose to grab them by the tail and pull them out in the sunlight of the day and be in choice about recognizing when they come up, recognizing what they are, recognizing when they come up and disrupting them, I'm living into the person I want to be. They are dangerous, however, if I ignore them, if I pretend I don't have them, if I, you know, dot, dot, dot. I mean, you can put whatever you want. That's when it becomes dangerous to others. But carrying bias, that doesn't, carrying bias does not make you bad. It makes you human. Yeah. Becoming more actualized as a human is examining those biases, being open to the fact that every single one of us has them. That's normal. That's the lived experience. So normalizing some of this with these things that say me too, allow people to sort of step in and, and let their nervous system settle so that we can have real learning, real growth, real allyship, real expansion of the work, real aspiration, rather than protection of protection of self protection of tribe. Mm -hmm. It's so God, it's so fascinating. Cause I think like for white people listening, like it's like, you got to do your own work. And, and like, you're saying like either you're paying black people to help you with it, who are offering and willing to do it with you paid or, or find a, like a white affinity space or find someone where, where you can go to like process it in your own way. Cause I mean, if, if we, like you're saying, if we don't, then we go into anti, we as white people go into anti, I as white person go into anti-racism spaces and cause harm because I don't understand my own mm. stuff and I'm projecting that and, and all of that. So, so it's like, it's like, I, I don't know, for me, it's a little bit like get your SHIT together before you really engage in mixed spaces. You know what I mean? Like, like figure out ways it's going to be uncomfortable. Like, cause I guess I'm curious to know how you, cause it's going to be, it's going to be hard, like expressing how that this work, this trauma work is uncomfortable and that that's expected and okay. Maybe is that, is that something that you hundred percent. And it's, it really is also, I think about being very intentional about the container we build for it. Yeah. And that also is slower, closer work. I, I, I would love to have a way to fast track all of this for us. That would be really nice. And I, I haven't seen it yet. I see a lot of organizations and institutions and, and 
places trying to push a button that that gets us from where we are to where we want to be and do a lot of harm as they do so slower closer work is also what it's also expensive Mm -hmm. it doesn't move as fast as it needs to right I, I mean I want to be really sensitive to the to this um piece of it too which is we can't afford to wait incrementalism is really not an option people are dying daily and have been you know forever from racism racism is deadly it's not just harmful it's deadly we know that we see examples every single day examples in our hospital examples on the street i mean it i don't need to to say this to your audience. So incrementalism is also not an option. Um, And I don't know that I see a great example in the world of here is exactly the path you take to get us from where we are to where we need to be in a short time. And so rather than think I have any of those answers because I don't, my choice has been to get actually get smaller and get slower and to do the work as intentionally as I possibly can. Yeah. And in particular, to be as intentional about the work as I can with those in leadership positions. Yeah. Because if we can help those who, who hold the purse strings for one and the levers of power for another, to to have the exhale i mean sometimes we look at at leadership and we think well they're they're leadership you know that's the dean that's the chancellor that's the governor that's the what you know drama dots at the end of that surely they know let me tell you something you sit down in the room one-on-one and all of us are just people carrying harmed places yeah and actually the truth of the matter that I am learning is that the the higher up in in quote-unquote leadership you are sometimes the more of those harmed places you carry and the fewer places you have that you can safely exhale you may not even know that you need to safely exhale anymore and once you get the chance to feel what that is to safely exhale to let your nervous system settle, to unpack some of this stuff, then you actually want to bring that to others. You can't lead somewhere you've not experienced. You, in this work, you can't lead into something unless you've experienced it and, and, and know what it feels like to be in that space. Once you know what it feels like to be in that space, in that type of community, again, with others, Mm-hmm. then you want that for everyone. Yeah. Well, I think we have to stop here because we are <laughs> past time. I, you know, I, I, have a, I have a call that like, I'm ignoring. You have, I hope you don't have anything that you are supposed to be doing, but um, there's so much juicy amazingness and everything that you shared. And, 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 and like, it's, like you're, it's like the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's, we just, I was just thinking, we just more. barely scratched the We surface. have like 10 more things, you know, cause like, I, I'm, I'm curious to time and we, we can't now, but like, I've heard many different approaches to this work from very different, brilliant people who are like, suck it up, get over it, white people. 
understandably, or also like, you know, like, like there's different ends of the spectrum of kind of like, why do white people get the special treatment of getting to process their trauma safely when we have, you know, like there's so much, but then if we, but still, like, if we don't give that space when then we want the progress. So like, what does it take to get, you know, like, there's just, there's so much, so many nuances, so many different approaches. And I love, I love your approach to humanity. Well, and I do want to say that the, the, the beautiful thing about the work that I do is for me, I mean, I get to do both and, you know, like the work at the medical school, which I, I just, I, I cannot give enough um, credit to uh, Southern Illinois University School of Medicine for recognizing this. That trauma mitigation um, role that I play in EDI there is, is for our students and residents and, and sometimes faculty of color. These are, and, and that is the recognition that there needs to be sacred space held yeah. specifically for that and primarily for that and first and foremost for that. Yeah. I absolutely 100% um, that's the priority because the harm there is, as we said, it's historical, it's intergenerational, it's, it's ongoing, it's, it, it's all of the, it's compounding and cumulative. Um, so I don't want to give any sort of indication that that's not primary. Yeah. And in order to, to build something that really moves us culturally and institutionally and all the things forward, right. we have to figure out how to do this for everyone in the room and that requires it's the both and it's the holding of the tension of it and it's intensely uncomfortable and uncertain and I don't have a great answer but we're working on it yes absolutely um Kimi how do people find you and work with you and we'll put all this in the show notes as well sure um check out the website it's lodestar l-o-d-e-s-t-a-r-p as in peter c as in uh, cake, <laughs> lodestarpc.com. Awesome. Awesome. And are you on social media? Eh, sort of, uh, Dr. Kimia on Twitter, which I almost never remember to look at. I'm on LinkedIn, which I also almost never remember to look at. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much. And, um, you have a, a trauma courses that people can take. We do. So, um, I run a, a, a a master coach series for, um, in trauma mitigation. It has 17 CME attached to it. It's also got, um, ICF, uh, core competencies. Um, so, and we just, um, we've got the first half of next year scheduled. There's some spaces remaining, uh, and then we'll be opening up additional classes as year goes on. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and this is the course that I've signed up for, for May, if anyone wants to join. <sighs> So, um, we got spaces in that I like have actually already signed up. So, um, so excited, Kimia. Thank you so much for, um, for being on the podcast and sharing your wisdom and experience and your, um, your like holding spaceness. (laughs) I made up, I just made up a new word. I Uh, love it. I do it all the time. And, um, for all the work you do, and, uh, have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye bye. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. 
You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.